Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister from Sir Johnny MacDonald all the way to Justin Trudeau. Although, we've finished that. We're on to part two. But first, before we continue, I want to say thank you to Hickaroost and Brynan, both of whom left five-star reviews. I truly do appreciate it, and thank you so much. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday. And Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And don't forget, next week, I have a new podcast coming, Coast to Coast, which is coming on June 3rd and will release every single Thursday, looking at the building of the Transcontinental Railway. Now, I had originally planned to do an episode in which I look at my own ranking of the Prime Ministers of Canada, but then I realized that's subjective, and my own ranking of the Prime Ministers won't be the same as anyone else's. Not to mention, it can be hard to rank Prime Ministers. Kim Campbell often gets put at the bottom, but she was in a no-win situation after taking over from an incredibly unpopular Prime Minister. Sir John A. Macdonald is often ranked near the top, despite the things that he did to the Indigenous and the Chinese. So instead, I decided to just dive right into part two of From John to Justin, looking at the opposition leaders who never became Prime Minister. Interestingly, we don't see our first opposition leader, who never became Prime Minister, until over a decade after Canada became a country. For the first Canadian Parliament from 1867 to 1872, there was no official opposition party. George Brown was the de facto leader of the Liberal Party during that time, while Sir John A. Macdonald led the country. As such, there's no official opposition leader. In 1872, the government of Sir John A. Macdonald once again retained power, and the Liberals are again led by a de facto leader, but this time it's in the form of Edward Blake. The first truly official opposition came in 1873 when Alexander Mackenzie led the Liberal Party, and he's soon to become Prime Minister later that year. Check out episode 2 of this podcast. Finally, on May 4, 1880, we have our first official leader of the opposition who never became Prime Minister, and it's the aforementioned Edward Blake. Sometimes we may think that for someone to lead the opposition and never become Prime Minister, somehow that means they've failed. But the truth is that Edward Blake didn't fail in life and he succeeded at many different levels. Born on October 13, 1833 in Adelaide, Upper Canada, his father was William Hume Blake, and his mother was his father's cousin, Catherine Hume. The Blake family was extremely close-knit, and Edward's paternal grandfather also married a cousin from the Hume family. The couple would come to Canada in 1832 and settled on a farm prior to the birth of their son, and Edward was born in a log cabin, but the frontier life did not suit William, and soon he relocated his family to the city. William would go on to study law in Toronto, and he became one of the leading lawyers in the province of Canada. In 1849, he would be elected in the riding of East York in the Legislative Assembly of the province of Canada, and he served until 1850, and in 1852 he became the Chancellor of the University of Toronto, serving until 1856. That was also a role that his son Edward would take on from 1876 to 1900. Needless to say, Blake had an upbringing where politics was front and centre in his life. He was also educated primarily at home, and his mother would say later that he received, quote, a desolatory sort of education for some years, and in the morning while dressing, his father gave him his Latin lesson. 
End quote. A tutor would also teach him various subjects, along with his mother. Blake would enter Upper Canada College in 1846 with the dream of becoming a lawyer like his father. While at the Upper Canada College, he would drift for the first few years before getting things together and becoming head boy in 1850, while winning several prizes and becoming highly thought of by his teachers. He would graduate in 1854 and articled at his father's law firm. In 1856, Blake would enter into a partnership with Stephen Jarvis and his brother Samuel Blake to form Blake & Blake. That firm still exists to this day as Blake, Castles, and Graydon, LLP. In a 2019 survey, it was named the strongest law firm brand in Canada. In 1856, he would marry Margaret Cronin, and the couple would often travel together, and she would travel with him on his political tours around the country and abroad. Together, they would have seven children, four of which survived both of them. One daughter, Sophia, would marry George Wrong, and together they would have one son, Hume Wrong. He would go on to become the ambassador to the United States and was a key architect of the North Atlantic Treaty that would become NATO. The legal career of Blake quickly grew and between 1857 and 1867, he was involved in 241 cases in the Court of Chancery, and on November 20, 1858, the Toronto Globe announced that he had, quote, great oratorical powers, end quote. It also stated that he had the potential to take his father's place as the preeminent lawyer in the province. In 1863, Blake would join several graduates in the University of Toronto Senate in rejecting recommendations from the education superintendent, Edgerton Ryerson, that would have divided government funding for the university among the denominational colleges in the province. This issue would be a victory for Blake and the others, and it helped him rise in prominence in the eyes of the public. Coupled with the prosperity of his growing law firm, he began to take an interest in politics. Even George Brown, a father of Confederation, was taking notice. He would say in March of 1867, quote, As a lawyer, he is admirable, excellent common sense, immense industry and great pluck. Not much of a politician, but anxious to learn and sharp as a needle. End quote. Blake was able to stand out in a crowd, and he was tall for his time with broad shoulders and a round face, and his gold-rimmed glasses helped give him a unique look. He also had a powerful voice that ensured he was always listened to when talking in a crowd. In 1868, Blake was recruited by George Brown to join the Ontario Liberal Party. Now serving in the provincial politics, Sir John A. Macdonald took notice and attempted to recruit him as a judge, but it did not come to pass as Blake saw the motivations of Macdonald to be purely political rather than based on Blake's merit as a judge, and he rejected the offer. Soon elected to the Ontario Legislature, he would introduce to the Assembly resolutions that opposed altering the terms of the British North America Act without a prior consultation from the provinces. This was done as a protest against the better terms many in Ontario felt Nova Scotia had received from the federal government. This allowed Blake to be seen as a potential leader of the opposition in the legislature against the Sandfield-Macdonald government. The issue of the Red River resistance and the murder of Thomas Scott raised intense emotions in Ontario, nearly bringing down the Sandfield government in March of 1871. On December 18, 1871, along with future Prime Minister Alexander Mackenzie, Blake launched an attack on Sandfield over the issue of parliamentary supremacy that would bring down the government. And by December 20th, Blake was the new Premier of Ontario. 
He would only serve a short time until October 1872 when he decided to leave provincial politics and focus on the federal level. He could have stayed in both the provincial level and the federal level, but the dual mandate had recently been abolished, forcing politicians to choose one level or the other. He would tap Oliver Mowat to replace him, and Mowat would spend the next 24 years as the Premier of the province. Now a member of the Liberal Party of Canada, Blake would play a critical role in the demise of the government of Sir Johnny Macdonald in the Pacific Scandal. I covered the Pacific Scandal in my episode about Sir Johnny Macdonald, but here is a quick rundown. The scandal involved bribes being accepted by 150 members of the Conservative government to influence the bidding of a national rail contract for the building of the Transcontinental Railway, and two groups were competing for the contract, the Canada Pacific Railway under Hugh Allen and the Interoceanic Railway Company under David Lewis McPherson. In 1873, it became known that Hugh Allen was given a huge sum, roughly $360,000, in political donations to the re-election campaign of the Conservative government in 1872. While Macdonald claimed to be innocent, there were claims that the money was used to bribe voters in the 1872 election. Soon enough, evidence came to light that showed the receipts of money from Allen to Macdonald and others. The entire affair would lead to the resignation of Macdonald as Prime Minister and the eventual temporary demise of his government in the 1874 election. As the Conservative government was falling, Blake was offered the role of Prime Minister of Canada, but he chose to turn it down due to the death of his infant daughter, the death of his father in 1870, and his own ill health at the time. Although some sources say that due to these matters he was passed over, rather than declined, and it was something he regretted for the remainder of his life. When Alexander Mackenzie became Canada's second Prime Minister, Blake was given the role of a minister without a portfolio. The next five years were not easy for Blake. He would often have intense bouts of anxiety over his social and political isolation in Ottawa, and a loneliness he felt there. He also overworked himself immensely, leading to exhaustion and severe headaches. In February of 1874, Blake resigned from Cabinet after intense campaigning in the previous election and exhausted him. Lord Dufferin, the Governor-General at the time, would state, quote, The elections having proved that his friends were strong enough to stand without him, Mr. Blake's health was precarious. He is making considerable fortune at the bar, and his nature is too sensitive for public life, end quote. Throughout 1874, Mackenzie would attempt to bring Blake back into the Cabinet. At the same time, Blake was worried about Mackenzie accepting the terrible terms related to the railway from the British colonial secretary. Mackenzie was beginning to tire, holding the title of Prime Minister and Minister of Public Works, and Blake would write a letter to him on September 6, 1874, suggesting he resign as Prime Minister and stay on as Minister of Public Works, with Blake taking over as leader. Mackenzie said he would leave both if he stepped down. On October 3rd in Aurora, Ontario, Blake spoke in a speech that many saw as a direct challenge on the leadership of Mackenzie. The speech was laced with snide remarks towards the leadership of Mackenzie, while also speaking of the proportional representation and compulsory voting, along with Senate reform and other matters. He also seemed to speak out against the compromises made by the administration of British Columbia into Confederation and the railroad which he called a deal that approached insanity. The speech was incredibly popular and was printed in the Toronto newspapers, and a public reaction to it threatened the stability of the party. In an effort to appease Blake, who was still seeming to be gunning for the top job, 
Mackenzie made him the Minister of Justice on May 19, 1875, after Blake declined the offer, becoming the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. While Justice Minister is one of the highest profiles, if not the highest profile, position in the government outside of finance in the Prime Minister's office, Blake was unhappy with the position. He was now more subject to the same criticism he levied at the government as a lawyer, outside the government for one, this was shown when he made a judicial appointment that was deemed designed and offensive in a letter sent to him. He responded, quote, Speaking for myself, I took office with reluctance, and while I am obliged to hold it, my effort will be, as it has been, to do the thing that is right according to my lights. I may err in judgment, but I hope not in attention. As a Minister of Justice, Blake would nominate the first members of the Supreme Court in September 1875, with the judges sworn in on October 7th. That same month, a public controversy would erupt when Sir John A. Macdonald suggested at a banquet in Montreal that Blake was neglecting his duties as Justice Minister in favour of his private law practice. Newspapers then began to claim that Blake, who had a strong ethic according to all those around him, was promoting judges whose salaries he could alter. Blake came close to leaving Cabinet over the matter, but he was persuaded to stay. In regards to his law practice, he took steps to negotiate a new partnership agreement that allowed him to retire from it temporarily, but allow him to retain a share of assets and profits for practice. After spending some time in England negotiating matters related to the Supreme Court Act, Albert James Smith was put in charge as Justice Minister. Upon Blake's return in 1876, he reversed the sentence of death for two men who were convicted of the murder of an Ontario farmer. This caused a huge bit of anger among the public, and Blake would again decide he needed to resign. He would write to Mackenzie, stating, quote, I am not apprehensive of attacks in Parliament, but I see that in the present state of things there is a danger that human life may be taken when it should be spared and the consequences which may flow from a murderer's hurried death are too awful to contemplate. End quote. Once again encouraged to remain as Justice Minister, Blake said that if he were to submit his resignation again, it must be accepted without hesitation. Over the next year as Justice Minister, he would introduce several changes to the Law of Canada, including the Collection of Criminal Statistics Act of 1876 and the Weights and Measures Act of 1877. By October 1876, his health was on the decline again, and it was said that with his severe headaches, he was near nervous exhaustion. Blake again attempted to resign as Justice Minister on April 30, 1877, but despite his previous understanding, Mackenzie protested and Blake agreed to remain in the position for a few weeks longer. In May of 1877, Blake and Mackenzie were offered knighthoods, but both turned them down. He would also be appointed as the President of the Privy Council in 1877, serving until 1878. Finally, on December 11, 1877, Blake finally resigned as Justice Minister, the same year that Wilfrid Laurier entered into the Liberal Cabinet. In the 1878 election, he ran for re-election, but he was too ill to campaign and instead went to Europe with his wife. He would lose his seat in that election as the Conservatives came back into power. Over a year later, on November 18, 1877, Blake would find himself back in politics with his election in a new riding by acclamation. With Mackenzie now under pressure from his caucus to resign, Blake was rejuvenated and ready to lead. On April 29, 1880, Mackenzie resigned, 
and Blake became leader of the Liberal Party later that day. As leader, Blake saw that the party had to recruit Roman Catholic voters in Ontario and Quebec, which he did by attacking the Orange Order and Corporation Bill in 1884, but that came at the cost of some Ontario Liberals. As the leader of the opposition, he would go into the 1882 election and actually help the Liberals gain 10 seats from the previous total, but it was not seen enough to unseat the Conservatives, who had a majority government with 133 seats. After the Northwest Resistance in 1885, Blake knew he had to take the right stance because of Quebec and its admiration for Riel. In early 1886, he would take a position that Riel had engaged in treason, but that he was insane. This would avoid outraging Quebec, but it disappointed followers in Ontario. As a leader of the official opposition, he would launch into long speeches regarding what he saw as needless spending on the railroad and the undermining of the moral fiber of the nation through the creation of a railroad monopoly. In 1885, a bill was put forward to establish Dominion qualifications for voters in federal elections, which was resisted by the Liberals. Blake would lead a debate in the House of Commons that lasted months, including a 57-hour filibuster. Once again, Blake found his health declining. After the election loss in 1882, he would attempt to leave as leader soon after, but stayed on. He then would attempt to resign in 1884 due to illness, but after staying in Europe for a time, he reversed his decision. In 1887, he once again helped the Liberals rise in seats, this time by six, while the Conservatives fell by ten. Once again, though, it was not enough to prevent another Conservative majority. After that second election loss, Blake chose to resign from federal politics, and this makes him one of only three Liberal Party leaders to never become Prime Minister, and the last one until the 21st century, when the Liberals had two leaders fail to become Prime Minister. More on them in later episodes. Blake would choose a man named Wilfred Laurier as a successor, and that man would become Prime Minister in 1896 and serve for the following 15 years in that role. Go check that episode out. For the next few years, he remained in Parliament, but he did little until his retirement in 1891. After leaving politics, he devoted himself to his legal practice, and he would even represent the CPR in a suit against the government over the quality of government-built sections of the line. By the 1890s, Blake was now living in Ireland, and in 1892, he would enter the British House of Commons as a member of the Irish Nationalist Party. He would continue to serve as a member of Parliament in the United Kingdom until 1907, during which time he was appointed to the Royal Commission on the Financial Relations between Great Britain and Ireland. During that same time, Laurier would attempt to bring his mentor back to Canada by offering him appointments to the Supreme Court in 1896 and 1905, as well as Chief Justice of Ontario. Following a stroke on May 24, 1907, he was paralyzed on the left side, and he decided that the time was right to return to Canada for a quiet retirement. On March 1, 1912, he would find himself unable to get downstairs in the morning. After some help, he was able to get to his sitting room, and at 6 p.m. he asked to be taken to the bedroom, but he collapsed while walking across the room. Doctors soon arrived, but they announced that Blake's heart was failing him. His last words were apparently, quote, I am feeling very sick, nurse, end quote. He would die later in the evening. The Winnipeg Tribune would run the headline, quote, 
Honorable Edward Blake, Canada's greatest citizen, is dead, end quote. The Ottawa Journal would announce, quote, The passing of the greatest parliamentary figure in the history of Confederation is a term that applies to Edward Blake, end quote. Speaker T.S. Spruill would state, quote, I had the privilege of sitting in the House with Mr. Blake for many years, and though we differed strongly in our views of political questions, I am delighted to say that we were the best of personal friends. Edward Blake was undoubtedly one of the greatest men Canada ever produced. He was a statesman born to political leadership. End quote. So what would Blake have been like as Prime Minister? Well, that can be hard to say, but one thing I want to do with Part 2 of From John to Justin is to look at what could have been. The most significant change with Blake as the second Prime Minister of Canada would be with the railroad. He was clearly against the concessions made to British Columbia and the expenditures put towards the railroad. It was one reason he wanted to take over leadership from Mackenzie. If Blake became Prime Minister in the 1870s, it's possible that he would have taken a different route with the railroad, which would alter the fabric of Canada in later years. While Macdonald was back into power in 1878 and work on the railroad began quickly, Blake as Prime Minister may have delayed it. This would have changed the fabric of the prairies. Alberta and Saskatchewan would still become part of Canada, but due to a delay in the railroad, that would have delayed settlement, which would have likely caused a delay in their provincehood in 1905, and possibly even their borders. So while Canada would still exist as it does now, with its same borders externally, the internal borders may have changed. Of course, if Blake somehow won the 1878 election as Prime Minister, it would have changed everything. British Columbia would have seen the failure to build a railroad as a broken promise, and may have left Confederation, and the prairies would have been much slower in settlement, and possibly the Indigenous would have resisted being put into reserves longer, and formed into a cohesive force that would allow them to proclaim self-government or their own nation within the prairies. While Blake was clearly skilled, his own issues regarding criticism, his push to overwork himself, and his insistence on dominating party matters as party leader hurt him. His long speeches lasted six hours in some cases, and would leave his own party members with little to say. Sir Richard Cartwright would describe Blake as a man who left his supporters with nothing to say, and that Blake had a general ability, but was intensely ambitious, exceedingly sarcastic, and absurdly sensitive to criticism who often behaved like a spoiled child. John Charles Dent, a 19th century historian, would say that Blake possessed, quote, a manner as devoid of warmth as is a flake of December snow, and is devoid of magnetism as is a loaf of unleavened bread. End quote. I hope you enjoyed that look at Edward Blake, the first person to be an opposition leader and never become Prime Minister. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you will find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke Guess, JP Bear, Jason Hall, 
Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Biography, Canadian Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, Winnipeg Tribune, Ottawa Journal, and the Calgary Herald. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.